Imagine reading everything there is to know about whitewater rafting, never setting foot in the river. Do you think that makes you ready to ride the Colorado? Welcome to the Pedagogy Toolkit. In this episode, we discuss alternative assessments, what they are, when should you use them, and what makes them different from what we think of as traditional testing. You, you pronounce pedagogy? Pedagogy, is that... Uh, it, we, so we went through this in the, the first one that okay. James and Cammie and I went through. And we, okay, I missed that then. Well, no, there's, there are two ways to pronounce it. Mm-hmm. One is the British way. And one is the American way. Okay. And I think I must do the British one. Pedagogy. Pedagogy. But I've never, I, I, I remember the first time I heard the word uh, when I was in grad school and I was like, this, I don't, this can't be right. Pedagogy doesn't, that sounds like a made right. up word. Right. That, I doesn't, know. <laughs> that doesn't sound the right. The British one would be pedagogy. Pe- pedagogy. Pedagogy. No. All right. So Alex. Omelie. Think of a doctor who makes straight A's on all of their tests, who completes all of their um, papers, who does everything right, you know, star of every class, and has never done an internship. Are you comfortable seeing that doctor? Probably wouldn't let them touch me. Yeah, I wouldn't. I wouldn't feel great if I was walking into their office and that was known information. I'd say, let me let me get somebody who has has been around a little bit more and actually had some experience. Someone who's actually done the things. Actually done the things. Even if they're, I, I would take someone who's fresh out of medical school and has actually gone through all of the residency and and everything like that and and got, done that versus somebody who's just done it on the the theoretical side. So there's that idea that we need both. The knowledge, because we also want the doctor to to know what. Oh, yeah. What, I mean, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I could go do an internship. Doesn't mean I know anything. I can I can Google. I can ask Dr. Google. Right. But I don't need I want I want the doctor to know some things, but I also want him to know how to use those things, what to do with that knowledge. And so uh, today, let's talk about assessments, how we actually gauge whether our students are learning what we're trying to teach them. Yeah, because the connection would be the assessment, you know, they've aced every test. They've, in theory, you know, know everything based on that assessment. But by practical assessment, we we intuitively understand that's not there's still something missing there when, when the doctor's analogy is played out. We've all known somebody who knows a whole lot of things and can't do the things. Yeah. Yeah. We probably play this in other expressions with, you know, book smart versus street smarts. Sure. Um, you know, knowledge versus wisdom, the implementation of, of knowing a thing versus just the idea of knowing a thing. Um, but we can test both of those kind of categories, however you want to label them. And so that's kind of what we're diving into right now. Uh, so when we think of assessments, we often think of what traditional assessments. So multiple choice, short answer essays, um, things that have right and wrong answers, Mm -hmm. things that test knowledge and facts. Right. Versus what we're going to refer to as alternative assessments. And those are the things that measure what a student can and cannot do with that knowledge. 
Do you know anything on the history of like why traditional assessments developed and why those are so common versus the alternatives that we're going to discuss? I'm actually reading a book right now where he talks about how we learn things, how the education system has or has not um, supported that. And so you have this this history of of apprenticeships being the norm for how people learned a profession or how they they learned things they they had somebody that they worked with and they did hands-on work. Right. And then at a certain point, we made a shift and it seems to have, and I don't remember if he talks about this in that book or if this is from something else, but he, there is a, a shift along with the industrial revolution yeah. of moving to compliance based education right. and making sure that the, the point is less about what the people in front of the teacher, what they know. And it's more about, can they do what they're told? Yeah, because it went from individual craftsmanship for any particular discipline to put this piece into this component right. for the majority of, of production and the majority of job opportunities. Doesn't require the same level of skill sets. Requires compliance. Stay on the line it, it and continue to put things together. Stay on the line. It requires come back when you hear the whistle. Yeah. Leave when you hear the whistle. Yeah. That's where bells in uh, traditional schooling yeah. comes from. Was practice sitting in rows. It's all practice uh, for an industrial workforce. Yeah. And there's tiny nuggets within some of that setup that we don't want to lose, right? Like you're talking about earlier, we want knowledge. We want to be able to facilitate a space where there is structure and there's an ease of facilitating the basics Absolutely. of knowledge. But that's going to fall short if that's what we're focused on, which has really been kind of the norm ever right. since the Industrial Revolution that we haven't really moved away from. We've done a lot of um, focus in education on those bottom couple of pieces, the base pieces of the Bloom's pyramid, yeah. where we're focusing on, do you know it? Can you repeat it? Do you know it? And not, so what? Right. I know it, so what? Right. And that, having worked in, I worked before I worked here at Global Campus, I worked in admissions for four years and dealt a lot with these traditional assessments are the standardized way that we measure a student performance coming into college. Right. The ACT, the SAT. And that's the standardized. This person knows the basics more than this other person. So they're more likely to get admitted or they're less likely to get admitted based on those metrics. But really, we can't decipher anything more of what is that student actually like and how successful are they actually going to be in their education just based on a number. And if I recall, there have been several longitudinal studies done following students that score very well on standardized tests mm -hmm. and then do not do well uh, in college. Yeah. Because that's all they've focused on. They focused on getting those standardized tests, those multiple choice, getting all the knowledge. And then when it, then they're thrown into college where they're told, okay, now you have to uh, do some things. Apply the knowledge. You have to take that knowledge and and show us what it's worth. And that's a lot of students really struggle under that yeah. because they haven't had that kind of practice. Yeah. The, the other note on this was there was some interesting data we started to collect in enrollment as the pandemic was happening. And 
the ACT and the SAT wasn't available for that first year and a half. Students couldn't take it. Most of them were left with that junior ACT or SAT when they first took it. And maybe their scores weren't so great because they were just getting exposed to it. And that's a high anxiety inducing environment. So we had a lot of students with relatively solid GPAs who performed well over the course of their, you know, six to nine semesters at that point. Uh, but their ACTs were relatively lower than what it would have been. We found that when those students started to come to campus, at least for the first year, when that post-pandemic era really began, retention maintained. So the they could have higher GPAs, which was a slightly better indication. There's still some some questions because sure. that's still relying on a lot of traditional it's still assessment. Subject, and it's still subjective It's in still some subjective ways. and relative based on institution and based on grade inflation. And there's a whole lot of factors that, sure. that play in there. But by and large, if you're just looking at the meta-analysis, the better indicative performance metric was a GPA, which is a little bit more rounded of an assessment analysis tool than just a single test in a single environment at this one time at this one place. Well, I think that idea of it being a more rounded assessment is a big part of alternative assessments, yeah. too, is thinking so. about that as a, um, a more comprehensive. Whenever it, anyone talks to people who are hiring in industry, they almost universally say that what they are looking for from the people they're hiring is not the finite knowledge of that discipline or of that industry yeah. because that changes and, and grows over time. It's can they do these specific or, or more broad tasks? Can they learn that stuff? Can they um, critically think? Can they problem solve? Can they do those pieces? Yeah, it's the, the soft skills are more and more valued, the emotional intelligence, the active learning versus the only the hard skills or the, the technical skills. Absolutely. So we've kind of laid the groundwork of understanding some of the traditional assessments and a little bit of that, that landscape. So then tell me a little bit more about alternative assessments and how you kind of define that, kind of how we move into that direction. Okay. So alternative assessments, uh, we're looking at things that are going to have a product or a performance they're going to be um, more, they're going to synthesize the information. It's going to be pulling from multiple areas. It's not just one piece of the puzzle. It's, it's has the whole puzzle been, been laid out and put together. Yeah. Um, it often is contextualized in a real world scenario, sometimes hypothetical, sometimes in, in real life. Mm-hmm. The more in real life it can be, the the better the learning outcomes tend to tend to be. Um, there may not be one right answer. There may be multiple ways of achieving the same outcomes. That right there even just kind of shows the difference, I think, pretty clearly when you compare it to a traditional assessment, because I think of like a multiple choice quiz or a multiple choice exam, that's kind of the stereotypical traditional assessment. There is a right answer. And that's that's the metric of knowledge. So examples for that alternative type assessment might be what? How could a teacher implement these? So they tend to fall into several categories. Um, like I said, there are authentic ones. There are performance-based. There are portfolios. And portfolios have become much more popular. And those are kind of a nice way to bridge some of the traditional assessment with um, a reflective idea. Reflection has become 
finally become recognized as a major, major part of learning and how we how we get that meta understanding of our own learning. Yeah. So in thinking about these different products and performances, we specifically work with distance education here. And I think a lot of professors, a lot of instructors tend to think products and performance, that's great for a face-to-face class, but how am I supposed to do this by a distance? Sure. So there are a number of ways that that you can do that. And you can look at things like videos of those performances, videos of the artifacts, um, pictures, um, details, tracking of the process of building that product or that performance. Looking at virtual reality has really, I mean, technology yeah, can really allow absolutely. us to do a lot of things. Yeah, I think like simulation and like role role playing assessment type things where you're, you know, yes. in, a, in a scenario where you're putting on a particular role and then the students have to record themselves in those roles, acting those out or playing those out in like a business setting or a engineering setting, problem solving. Yeah. And I think about even when I was in college many, many years ago and we had to do conversation for foreign languages, we would pair up, get our little tape recorders mm-hmm. and do and do our our discussion on our little tape recorders. We have Zoom now. We have yeah. Teams. We have right. all these ways. to. We have FaceTime. We have all these ways to do this mm-hmm. that are um, technology enabled that actually in some ways make it easier to do yeah, and in think, a distance course. Yeah, absolutely. I would 100% agree. And, and thinking to that discussion of like the soft skills and the ability to problem solve actively, that's what employers are looking for nowadays. And that's how much of business occurs. I mean, we work with a lot of virtual meetings in our own office and department. I know plenty of friends and peers who are working in other industries, and some of them are fully remote and are doing things over Zoom, over Teams all the time. They're creating slide decks and presenting material and information, synthesizing data, communicating that to clients, communicating that to supervisors and peers. And so, employing these kinds of alternative assessments, project-based, presentation-based, you know, demonstration samples is going to be a very practical skill. They're going to have to continue to use more than just a multiple choice. Did I get this answer right or wrong Absolutely. as they move forward? Well, and, and that comes back to some things like um, business memos and letters to the editor yeah. and oral defenses. All of those those ways of assessing are are more comparable to how they would actually be assessed by their employers in real life in almost any industry. Yeah. Yeah. I think of a marketing course that I helped with fairly recently where the instructor had students. It's it's a digital marketing course. And instead of just giving them a quiz on components of digital marketing, he has them write LinkedIn articles and post these LinkedIn articles to their LinkedIn page saying, hey, you're starting to build your your base of how to market, how to explain in material and information, how to put it out there. I want you doing that actively right now. So that's actively building that skill in a way that they're going to just organically use whenever they get further into their field of career after they graduate. Um, I see a lot of uh, web-based portfolios and web resumes and yeah. and things like that where, where they are taking all of these pieces of samples of things that they have done, put it all together, and then... Now there's something that that student is leaving your class with. Yes. 
where they can go and and to their employer or to their next or to their graduate program or whatever and say, yeah. this is look at what I can do. Absolutely. I, I love portfolios and e-portfolios. That's actually one of the things that I, I try to focus on a lot in my assessment kind of paradigm when I when I talk to instructors. And it's also something, you know, I used in my my graduate program and I still have today. Like I have a website that is my e-portfolio website. And what's fun about that is it's it's a living document in the sense a living site where I've gone back and I've updated it because you've kind of got two different categories when it comes to portfolios. You can go you can go a little bit more the career showcase focused, and that would be where there's going to be a lot more examples that we're talking about. So if a student does an internship or does some kind of product development, the portfolio is great because it's a great space to provide that summative information to show future employers, hey, this is these are the skill sets I possess. Here's how I've demonstrated them, and I'm putting them all in one space for you to evaluate to, to potentially make me ready for the future. Where you're kind of talking earlier, they can blend a lot more with traditional assessments is, you know, you can also look at showcase from a um, academic perspective where a student has written a lot of really good papers or has created multimedia during their time in the fine arts and whatever that might be. And they can post that on an e-portfolio as well. And it will have that dual purpose. It can be that space where the student will see their own reflection of how they've grown from their 100, 1000 level courses to their senior seminars and capstones to put all that into a body of work in an e-portfolio that really then allows them to reflect on their growth then it also allows them to showcase that growth and showcase their skill sets to potential future employers. And so they've got this great dual purpose. And then ideally, if they're set up, I know on our campus, we're, we're coming up with an initiative where we're using a external software where we will host students' e-portfolios, and then they can take those and have private domains once they graduate um, in WordPress, and they're able to just build them in their undergrads and then take them moving forward to actually use them in either of these ways as personal reflection, summation, or career readiness. Um, and actually, this is something that I've really, really wanted to do uh, for a long time. There's some great free uh, VR stuff where you can build a gallery, like an art gallery, and yeah. you design it. You build, you show where the walls are, you design the the floor, the the color of the walls, and then all the artifacts on the wall, they can be interactive to go out to links to things, the little cards on there, just like you would in a museum. Right. And I've long wanted to make that um, sort of a resume builder for students to have them with each of those years was a, a room and you built and you added on rooms. Oh, cool. And then when they graduated, I wanted them to have um, QR codes that they could because you can then view it on a phone right. or on. Or you were just waiting for Apple Vision Pro. I was waiting <laughs> you for were Apple. Ready for it. I was ready. I was ahead of the curve. Yeah. Yeah. Showcase. But I was thought, how, how impressed would I be as a as an employer if I had this student who could show me their how much they can learn in four years, yeah. who can do that in a way that is tech forward, that yeah. is um, that's that shows them as a person and as as a worker and as a student, as a learner and as a self-reflective human. <laughs> like Absolutely. It's just it, yeah. there's so much you can do with this stuff. Right. Because you're touching on there's there's so many value points in that. One of them being the tech savvy. You want 
continually employees employers will want employees who can adapt to sure. ever changing landscape of of the materials and supplies and hardware and software they're using. But then as you mentioned the reflection piece, I don't I can't think of many industries where self-evaluation is not going to be required. Right. Not whether on a quarterly basis, a biannual basis, an annual basis, like and then you take that to your superior and have discussions on future performance metrics. So you need to know how to reflect and think back on, okay, here's where I was. Here are goals that I've set for myself. Here's how I've achieved those goals. And here's how I'm going to move forward and grow for future goals. And so building that in, whether it's through a portfolio or some kind of showcase, um, virtual showroom, gallery, things like that are great like stepping stones when students are in school to begin that process. Because we are we are kind of mandating it in a sense. We're kind of yeah. creating that environment where, hey, we, we're kind of forcing you to reflect. We want you to reflect, but we want you to build that skill just as much as any other pedagogical skill that you're putting in place moving forward in your discipline so that you can also then reflect on how you're maintaining growth in your discipline moving ahead. Um, which sort of jumping off that idea of teaching the student to be more reflective and and teaching some of those metacognitive skills. The, the one thing that I did forget to mention is I, I often recommend to instructors to when they give students choice of of how they want to demonstrate the, that they understood the concept or right. that they can manage the skill, that there be a wild card option. Ooh. That the wild card option is if, you know, I can say to you, you you have these options to present uh, a, a research project to me. You can write a traditional research paper. You can do a research presentation. You can pair up with your your internship or your your employer, your job, and and find something that you need to to do some some work on. Or if you have another idea, I'm I'm open to it. Yeah. And I had a student one year that did. She was doing a research paper on uh, sustainability in in raising chickens. <laughs> and she, as we do, as yeah. we do, and <laughs> she did. She created a whole Minecraft world. Okay. Awesome. That was a that encompassed all her research. Yeah. It shows that if you can give them that space, sometimes they can so, and this was a student who wanted to be um who wanted to do 3D animation. So it was within her her wheelhouse. This was exactly the kind of thing that was going to give her an opportunity to practice skills that she would need in her career focus. Yeah. And those bigger skills of research, of uh, source evaluation, of presentation. And how much more that shows her aptitude and skill sets versus if you just mandated a 10-page research paper. Right. You're going to miss so much of what she's good at and available to like grow in. But by providing these alternatives and her assessment options, she was able to really come up with something creative, which is what you want. You want students to get creative to still demonstrate their their base level knowledge and competencies right. like we're talking about, but really grow beyond that. One one question from that experience, what was that like then as the instructor when it came to grading and evaluating a variety of assessment types? Because I could see maybe some questions from instructors being like, well, if I open up the floodgates and I get five different types of projects or presentations or assessments, how do I do that in a way that is fair and equitable 
for all students to receive that well this student got this grade and this student got this grade but then they see how they did things differently and then they take issue with grading when it's Right. Like how do I how do I equalize the schema? So when I've talked to instructors about um, personalizing basic, which is basically what that would be, is personalizing the assessments yeah. for the students. They go, I can't do eighty different projects. I'm not writing up eighty different uh, assignments. I'm not writing, you know, eighty and different rubrics. But et cetera. that's yeah. where you get down to rubrics. Rubrics are are critical yeah. in grading these kinds of assessments. Yeah. When you have a right and wrong answer. It's yes, it's no. <laughs> you know? uh-huh. when, when you're doing multiple choice and that's there's a right, there's a wrong. End of story. When you're grading something that is more fluid like this, you need to have a rubric. And a rubric allows you to look at something on a continuum. So you can see if, if you know, someone who didn't know anything about this, what would their project look like? Versus someone who's an absolute world-class expert, what does their project look like? And what are the stages in between? So that's that's the first part. It allows you to sort of see that on a growth continuum. It allows you to give feedback to the students through that. And the thing that I m- most love is it allows you to isolate the skills that you're asking for. Yeah. So if it, with, for example, a research project, um, if I'm I might be looking at their source selection, that might be one thing that I'm looking at. I might be looking at their analysis of the source. That's a separate thing. I might be looking at their presentation of the information, and that's a whole other thing. And so some students may do great at the presentation, pretty good at the analysis, not great at the selection of the sources. Right. And by being able to parse those pieces out, you're giving students really specific feedback on where they need to put their efforts yeah, which tells them a lot more and tells you a lot more than just yes or no, right or wrong. And like I kind of made the joke, you don't have to make 80 rubrics. You can make one solid rubric, but it encapsulates enough. What you're saying is it'll encapsulate enough of the components across this spectrum of alternative assessments because they're all going to have the same basic flow and function if you're looking at research or if you're looking at certain subject matter. You're going to look for certain core components. Right. So you need to, that goes back to your planning as well. So this goes back to what do I need? What am I trying to assess? That is ultimately should be the question you always come to. That is, should be like the thesis of your course. What am I assessing? Yeah. What do I want the student to know to do? And how can I, how will I know when they have learned it and have done it? And what does what does that look like at all of its various stages? Absolutely, because that hits on a lot of things we talk about here a lot. Backwards design, understanding your course level objectives, your unit level objectives, lesson objectives. It all has to flow from there. You have to know your end from your beginning. And and thinking about that's also where you can ask yourself questions like, what do I need? So what am I assessing right now? Do I just need them to have the base knowledge at this point? Or do I need them to apply the knowledge at this point? And this is where you can really combine it with those um, low, t- low stakes testing that we've talked about in, in another episode. Yeah. That you can use those very low stakes things as milestones throughout the course to make sure they're getting the knowledge they need so that at the end, when they are doing that final alternative assessment, you know that they have gotten all the the foundational pieces. Now you can score just the 
um, those softer skills. Yeah. Yeah. This is where collaboration amongst departments and, you know, chairs and heads really understanding the program goals and kind of what, what has to happen. Cause again, you, if you're teaching in an advanced level course, you have to understand like, well, if they have already gotten that, those lower taxonomies of identification and definitions and describing certain aspects, maybe my role in instruction is to really get them to synthesize and analyze and create and evaluate. And again, that's going to have practical implication because I don't want whenever, you know, this probably analogy falls apart at a certain point, but I don't want my med school resident to be going to the hospital and taking multiple choice assessments. You know, (laughs) I want them going to their residency to practically engage and then be evaluated by their um, supervisors on what they're practically doing in the hospital on a regular basis so that I know when they're a board certified licensed doctor, I'm getting the proper treatment that I'm, that I need to be getting. And so that that is where that really comes in. Yes, you you may still need to incorporate some of the the lower level taxonomies where a quiz makes sense, but that's I think low stakes is where that makes the most sense. Assume, not assume, but like create a space where they can demonstrate that competency knowledge from the prerequisite, but then focus on right what is the actual goal of this course or this lesson that's going to demonstrate their more advanced levels of learning. Well, and it allows you if you have those those low stakes tests pieces, those little quizzes where you're making sure that they have that knowledge, that gives you that opportunity as an instructor when when you discover they don't. Yeah. Um, or if you discover that half the class has it and the half that took this other professor that didn't know what they were doing doesn't have it. So you need to make sure that that group gets that information. And there's that's the only way you can you can do that is if you you test what they know. Yeah. There, there's an inevitable amount of backtracking you're going to have to do when when you come into a, a new course or a new subject with with a group of people and you can't all assume that they all know the same thing going into it but again the best way to do that long term to get them to the end assessment is going to be to personalize and individualize the the end goal assessments and that is that and I know when we say individualize and personalize, it sounds so scary when you have, you know, 80 students that you're dealing with or 50 students or hundreds, like whatever. Sure. But if you build the frameworks of what you are asking from the students, if you build those frameworks with the right levels of specificity and breadth, you yeah. can apply those kind of across the board. Oh, I, I, I'm thinking back to my my undergrad being in history education. I would much rather grade 50 unique different projects with oh, a standard yes. rubric that at least guides them and has a compass for them to be pointed in the right direction than try to read 50 five-page essays <laughs> that are going to re- regurgitate the same themes and the same beats and the same kind of basics over and over again. I would rather see some of that nuance and see some of that creativity. That's going to be more enjoyable from a grading perspective if I have to be the one to grade all of this. So there's a kind of a a, a fringe benefit out of that. Oh, yeah. The first year I taught writing, I had the entire class summarize the same article. Right. And we sort of summarized it as we, we outlined it as a class and then they wrote it up. But that was the most boring 25, 50 was 50. The most boring 50 summaries I have ever read in my entire life. Not because they weren't 
delightfully written. <laughs> they were just for identical. <laughs> right. Um, and honestly, it it kind of it told me that they could do that as a group. It didn't tell me much about what they could apply. Right. You weren't measuring an individual learning experience that was taking place. Right. For each of them. So that eventually I evolved that into we look at this text as a class and then they can select one that they apply that to. They don't have unlimited choice. They have limited choice that I have some control over. And again, so that's setting up those those frameworks, those boundaries. Right. It's it's kind of understanding the idea that boundaries can lead to freedom, that by creating, you know, here's the fence line. I want you to not just stay in this one little section that would be a traditional assessment, but I'm giving you this space to to wander and yeah. explore. But, but you also, don't get to no, go to the next farm. Here, here's the boundary. Yeah. Don't cross that fence. But within that, there's so much freedom in that. And you're going to ex- discover things within your own little perimeter that you didn't know was there before. Um, that's great for the students. That's great for you because then as they start to, to expand those borders a little bit and get closer to the fringes, maybe they'll discover assessment ideas and opportunities that you hadn't thought of yet. Exactly. Like, like again, the Minecraft yeah. world. Um, and that's a really cool benefit too is then you can see application of the subject matter in ways that maybe you hadn't ideated before just because – we were thinking only in, the, in this traditional assessment. So there's nothing more fun as an instructor than when your student comes up with something you had never thought of, and it's it's brilliant. And, and they're excited about and it, excited. and they want to do it. I'm excited. Everybody's yeah. excited, and, yeah. and you get to see where it where it can go. Um, there still is there is a small chance that that could still end up in a gutter as a gutter ball. Yeah, and that's okay. Yeah. That it's okay if you have this range of alternative assessments and a student misses the mark because that helps you understand, okay, this is where they are at individually and I can work with them in a, in a more clear, identifiable way than if I just saw them get X, Y, Z wrong on a test. That's, that's useful and that's helpful. But sometimes it's luck. Right. Oh, if there's four answers, you've got a 25% chance to get, get it right. So this allows a much more targeted, clarified understanding of student learning and allows students to then reflect more clearly on their learning and what they understand versus don't. So I think we really are going to need to do um, an episode at some point about grading and different yeah. different ways to grade and get a little more into the weeds on rubrics. And Yeah. Um, James and I have touched on this in another episode. We're going to have to do rubrics at yeah. some point. <laughs> I, I used to be a total hater on rubrics. I hated them. Um, and it was only because I had never used one that was well-written. They, they can bloat to a way where they are more to manage than – and they become more cumbersome than just a traditional assessment. But if they are done well, written well, like you're saying, yes, they are a fantastic tool in the tool belt. So uh, to wrap up, uh, like we've said, alternative assessments aren't really meant to take the place of traditional assessments. It's one more tool. It gets overlooked a lot in online courses, I think, especially because – it's a little more inner. It requires more interactive, uh, in more interactivity from both the student and the instructor. Um, but it doesn't have to be difficult, and it can really increase your engagement with your students. It can increase. It can allow you to have a better understanding of what your students are actually learning. Yeah, we want the doctor to have the textbook knowledge and the practical experience uh, before they start poking and prodding and diagnosing us, right? Exactly. (laughs) Yes. 